0: You're listening to The Daily, first broadcast on the 25th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Is Black Friday quite the reliable consumerist frenzy it once was? Why has New York City gone so far backwards on so many fronts? And has Australia found reason to love its least liked bird? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the only Monocle staffers who haven't gone out looking for a McDonald's to vandalise ahead of the USA-England game are Jack Simpson, Marcus Hippie and Nick Moniz, who will be contemplating urban renewal, sauna therapy and the redemption of the Ibis. Plus, we'll have the latest business news, our regular On This Day history lesson, and a look at the auction of a rare and expensive item of Charles Darwin Yama. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Victoria Scholar Jack Simpson, Dr. John Van Wy, Nick Manice, and Marcus Hippie. We will have more from them all in due course. But first, today, as your email inbox will already have reminded you, not less than 1,000 times is Black Friday, the day after the US celebrates Thanksgiving, designated by retailers as the one on which Americans should work off yesterday's dinner by brawling over discounted electrical goods in Walmart parking lots. There are suggestions, however, in the US and elsewhere that this year's Black Friday may be, in business terms, more akin to Bleak Friday, with sales down on last year due to cost of living concerns. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Um, Victoria, first of all, before we talk about this year's Black Friday, Black Friday in general, how important has it become to retailers? How much of their year do they bet on it?
1: Well, it was originally uh, something that Came from the United States, obviously, like you say, the day after Thanksgiving, but it's expanded over years. You know, it's extended from Black Friday into a whole weekend, um, enduring until Cyber Monday. And like you mentioned, in terms of the emails, it seems to now be almost a fortnight worth of discounts with a pre build up and then additional days added on on the end. Um, this is a seasonally critical importance for the retail sector in the run up to Christmas. And Black Friday has has increasingly garnered more and more attention, and better and better discounts. And businesses are desperately fighting it out for the slim down pot of consumer spending this year. So discounts are more aggressive than ever, I'd say. And so, yeah, it's it's probably one of the most important Black Fridays that we've seen, given the focus on cost cutting and finding those deals.
0: Well, what? Yeah, exactly. That was there more riding on it this year than the last few years, because for most of the world. This is the first Black Friday in a while where there's been no particular restrictions on being able to go out and buy stuff.
1: Certainly. This is going to be an important uh, retail period for businesses. We know that a lot of them are struggling, particularly with the woes on the high street. The physical stores have been having a very, very tough time. And particularly this year with the pressures of inflation that are dampening consumer appetite to go out there and spend. So, it's a really aggressive and competitive Black Friday this year. Businesses really trying to fight it out to get some of those um, customer pounds into their Accounts, Um, And that's why we're likely and have already seen more aggressive discounts to try and entice shoppers. And businesses themselves have also been facing a whole host of cost pressures from rising wages to materials to energies as well. So although they will be looking and have already been looking at applying discounts, Uh, They don't want to do so so that it ultimately negatively impacts revenue. They're hoping that these uh, sales will overall create a boost to sales uh, so that they can generate better revenues and profits.
0: Do we have a sense yet of how far short of hopes or expectations this year's Black Friday? And as you correctly point out, it's not merely just a day anymore, but a season almost. um, how, How far short of those hopes it is looking?
1: Well, like you say, we were looking at more of a bleak Friday, given all of the stresses around the cost of living and rising mortgage costs and rental value surging. But it looks like Black Friday sales so far have been steady, so perhaps a little bit better than some analysts were expecting. I'd say probably the main reason for this is that there is such a focus on looking for bargains, consumers possibly carrying out more of their festive shopping a bit earlier, bringing those decisions to November rather than waiting to closer to the time when prices go up again, when, yeah, everything is a bit more expensive. So um, there is initial indications that actually um, footfall is up on last year, of course, um, we had some COVID restrictions then. Uh, It is a bit down versus the pandemic, or before the pandemic, should I say, but it looks as though it's a little bit better than a lot of the experts were forecasting.
0: Well, on that thought, is it also possible that the pandemic has genuinely transformed people's attitudes to shopping and to consumer events like Black Friday? I mean, obviously, it will probably take years for us to figure out uh, how it has altered human and behaviour, but is -hmm. is it possible Black Friday might have been an idea of its time?
1: Well, I think that there's no doubt that the pandemic expedited a whole host of different trends in society and in the economy that perhaps are already there, but now sped up. So working from home, for example, being the obvious one, a lot of people used to work from home one day a week. Now that's gone up a lot more. So we've seen this decline in um, office demand. We've also seen a fall in the high street. There's a big shift towards online shopping. Um, But there have been some complications when it comes to that because of strikes. We know that uh, Royal Mail is on strike at the moment. Um, So some postal services aren't in operation. But I'd say that a a lot of the sales this year will be done online. And that seems to be a growing shift and an easy way as well to navigate some of the bargains and look across different stores and make comparisons and find the best deals.
0: Let's move along somewhat, but we will persist with the theme of somewhat gloomy economic news. Uh, (laughs) China's economy continues to grind along in second gear, hopes of any imminent acceleration apparently dashed by a combination of its worst COVID-19 outbreak since the pandemic began and the Chinese Communist Party's boneheaded insistence on totally suppressing the virus regardless of cost. Now, I'm, I'm always a bit careful about Chinese economic figures because whenever we talk about them, whether they're good or bad, we are ultimately taking the Chinese Communist Party's word for it. So is it possible to accurately gauge how grim things presently are?
1: The short answer is by using the official figures, no, because we typically have to take them with a pinch of salt. But even the official figures have been slowing down. China had a growth target for this year of 5.5%. But Beijing has slowly started to stop mentioning this. And the forecasts are actually that the economy will grow somewhere around 3%, possibly just above that, with a slight pickup into next year. But like you say, um, the party. Has been engaging in this draconian approach to COVID, a zero tolerance approach, which has been sharply disrupting economic activity. You know, we've seen exports slowing. A lot of businesses are actually deciding to take their factories to other Asian economies instead. We've seen export growth now at a five month low. And actually, this is leading to some civil unrest as well. Foxconn, which is a supplier of Apple, has um, seen its workers uh, stage a walkout amid, you know, the fact that they have essentially been locked down on and off since 2020. Our oh, COVID feels like a long time ago, and they're still deeply in it.
0: I mean, is it possible that? As we were talking about with Black Friday, this might have been something to which, well, towards which attitudes have fundamentally shifted. Three or four years ago, dragging economic news from China used to make the whole world nervous. Is that still the case or is there now a trend, as you sort of foreshadow there, of especially foreign businesses just re- realising that China cannot be relied upon?
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we've seen that with the mass exodus of workers from Hong Kong with its security crackdown as it becomes more and more aligned with the mainland. 140,000 workers have actually left. And um, some of the engines of growth for China in recent years have come from its tech sector. Alibaba and Tencent are some of its big tech giants. But actually, there are concerns about an authoritative crackdown on the sector. Some of these companies have been facing heavy fines throughout the summer. And we've seen this huge shift in sentiment from the investor community. Investors are really um, deterred from placing their money in China and concerns about what the authorities might do next.
0: Victoria Scholar, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. And it is time now for our regular on this day history lesson. It is 1970 and an enduring demonstration of how not to throw a coup
2: d'état. Ainsi, le mouvement patriotique des <laughs> jeunes des forces de défense et de sécurité, soucieux de sauver la démocratie en péril, préserver l'intégrité du territoire national et la cohésion nationale.
0: The coup d'etat has been a feature of history for as long as there have been ambitious usurpers, i.e. for basically ever. The pioneer of the manoeuvre may have been Zimri, a treacherous chariot commander, who in the year 876 BC or thereabouts bumped off Elah, fourth king of Israel, and indeed the entire royal family, and seized power. Like many such plotters since, however, Zimri couldn't make it stick. He realised the jig was up after a week and burned down the palace, himself inside it. From the mistakes made by the hapless Zimri and many, many similar conspirators since, lessons have by now been learned about how to stage a successful coup d'etat. In this, as with most things in life, it's important to get the basics nailed down. Ensure that you have a decent plurality of the armed forces on board, correctly calculate the likely acquiescence of the population, construct and keep secret a plausible plan, pick a propitious moment, square away or dispose of the incumbent power, take control of official media, deliver a reassuring address to the nation while flanked by serious-looking people with rifles, prepare to be ruthless with any resistance. resistance. Precisely none of these guidelines were observed on this day in 1970, when a coup d'etat was attempted in Japan. Nor was one other self-evidently, you would have thought, crucial rule adhered to, i.e. don't even think about pulling this stunt if you are, in fact, not a charismatic military officer, or exiled king returning, or revolutionary demagogue, but a novelist. Yukio Mishima, for it was he, was no ordinary author. He was, perhaps, the most famous and acclaimed Japanese writer of the 20th century, and though a man clearly possessed of considerable capacity for reflection, did not pause to contemplate how weird it might have looked around then if, for example, Truman Capote had stormed the White House or Doris Lessing attempted to overthrow Ted Heath. But one had never needed to read too deeply into Mishima's fiction to notice a couple of recurring themes. There was an attraction to the martial machismo of Japan's ancient samurai and more recent imperial past, and a proportional resentment of Japan's peaceable present. Mishima not the first or last Japanese nationalist to perceive the post-war settlement imposed on his country by its American conquerors as a sort of emasculation. This was how Mishima himself put it.
1: After the war, our brutal side was completely hidden. But uh, I believe it is just hidden. I think, and uh, I don't like the Jap- Jap- Japanese culture is uh, represented only by the flower arrangement, as such a sort of peace loving culture. Uh, we still have, I think, we still have a very uh, strong warrior mind in us. Our-
0: On November 25th, 1970, having delivered to his publisher the manuscript of his latest, the final instalment of his The Sea of Fertility tetralogy, Mishima struck... Dressed in the uniform of the paramilitary secret society he had established, and accompanied by four of the impressionable students which comprised its ranks, Mishima pitched up at a Japanese army base in Tokyo bearing a ceremonial sword and took the commandant captive. Elsewhere in the capital, the new parliament was opening. Mishima then strolled onto the balcony and declaimed the speech which, he believed, would rouse the troops to rise up and restore the dignity of nation and emperor. It did not. Judging by the footage shot at the time, the reaction in the ranks was a combination of bemusement, amusement and derision. Sensing that he'd abjectly failed to read the room, the crowd, or the moment, Mishima withdrew back inside, reportedly mumbling, ''I don't think they heard me.'' He apologised to his bewildered hostage and committed seppuku, or harakiri, the ritual auto-disembowelment of the dishonoured warrior, all over the poor fellow's floor. One of his four young accomplices took the same gruesome step into the hereafter, despite Mishima's last-ditch effort to dissuade him. Mishima had foreshadowed this climax in 1965 when he'd starred in the film of his own short story, Patriotism, playing a fictional young officer who kills himself following his participation in a real-life attempted Japanese coup d'etat 30 years earlier.
1: I wanted to revive
3: uh, some samurai pellets through it because I don't want to revive Harakiri itself, but uh, through the vision of such a very strong vision of Halakiri, I wanted to inspire and stimulate younger people. 52 years after
0: Mishima's terminal act of vainglory, conjecture continues regarding whether the 45-year-old writer was seriously attempting to topple the government, engaged in severely overwrought performance art, or merely acting out an especially demented midlife crisis. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, once a veritable paradigm of how a failing metropolis could be turned around, New York City appears to be backsliding towards the bad old days of violent crime, crumbling services and perilous subways. While smaller US cities from Bozeman to Boulder and Nashville to Asheville are booming and vibrant, the country's major metropolises are in trouble. Crime is up, homelessness is unchecked and the working from home movement has left public transport underfunded civic leaders everywhere are struggling to turn the tide so who can fix the great american city or indeed cities monocle's editorial assistant jack simpson joins us um it sounds to it, it sounds there jack as we introduced you like you're the guy who's going to do it i mean i'm not <laughs> i'm not saying it's beyond you but what we are actually doing here is fairly shamelessly plugging the new edition of monocle's the forecast you're quite right
4: andrew um and As much as people are being deterred from the metropolis that is New York City, um, places like Bozeman, like we cover in the forecast in our Small Cities Expo, are really attracting people due to low crime rates or uh, cyclable city centres and also breathtaking views as well. I've
0: been to Bozeman. It's very nice. A big hello to all our many listeners in (laughs) Bozeman. Yeah, so we've been delving into how post-pandemic New York has fallen
4: in key areas like crime, transport, housing and culture. Um, and particularly when we look at crime, we see that despite rates being far lower than they were in the 80s and mm. the 90s, and uh, former former prosecutor um, and uh the head of Vital City, a safety think tank, Elizabeth Glazer, did say to Monaco that New York is still the safest large metropolitan area in
0: the US. That's an area with over one and a half million in and, the population. And it's possibly clambering over a, a lowish bar there. Exactly. But, but nevertheless, it, it is perception does start to have an impact on cities, doesn't it? If people don't feel safe. Exactly. This
4: comes as no consolation to any of the people in New York. And I think... When we look from the pandemic, the effects of homelessness and mental health facilities, just there, there was no infrastructure to support these people. Mm. And this has expedited crime hugely. And then we look at the way they're choosing to police New York City. The new mayor, Eric Adams, um, has almost introduced a new form of stop and search. Um, it's very thinly veiled with more aggressive policing on
0: things misdemeanors like. Because this sounds like a cycle, though, that New York City has been through before. This this is evocative of the, well, the broken windows theory of policing. It was called under Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, uh, as as he then was, which, despite its manifold critics and criticisms, did actually have an effect of making New York City safer and making New York City feel like it was safer. uh, Has its moment come
4: again? Absolutely. Absolutely. It does feel like we are repeating history here. And as much as we can crack down on misdemeanours like public urination or drinking, which I'm sure seem to happen at the same time. um, (laughs) Or one after the other, usually. Usually, yeah, one follows the other. But we have other methods. And Elizabeth Glazer made clear these sort of softer policing methods that could really help. So something as simple as lighting areas. So Mm. obviously crime seems to go down when the criminal feels like they can be seen and then thus caught. Um, And then other areas which I think are a little bit more original, things like the greening over policy, which has been used in Philadelphia, where estates that are very, very run down, we're introducing sort of green areas, green lush areas, and people seem to be less likely to commit crimes in areas that seem to be covered in greenery.
0: When people are talking about, as they are in this story, how to get things, well, literally, in this case, back on track, how important do they consider public transport to be? I know that there is still this vestigial idea in the American psyche that public transport is basically something communists do, but but functioning clean, safe public transport obviously makes a huge difference to the livability of a city. Yeah, I think,
4: especially with New York, The the subway is like the lifeblood of New Mm. York City. This is how everyone seems to get about. But I think this is an idea that we seem to have our heads. And actually when we look at the statistics, it's dropping rapidly. So subway ridership rates hover around the 70% range compared to pre-pandemic levels and below the figure that ensures the service's long-term viability. Um, Office workers as well leaving the office. There's a mass exodus, so barely 50% have returned to their desks in some form or another, and only 10% are back full-time, so th- this is and, not being at, used.
0: But at this point as well, especially in the context of New York City, when you think of those enormous towers of Manhattan, that's starting to feel like a permanent shift, isn't it? Those people aren't going back. No,
4: absolutely, and there's the problem with transport is they're not feeling the benefit of people leaving, mm. so there's less... There's less subways moving. There's less buses. So they're still as cramped as they ever were, perhaps even worse. And then you have the hygiene problem. My uh, flatmate, uh, Camilla, who is a junior photo editor at Monocle as well, is currently in New York. And she was telling me about the sludge that is all over the subway as she's moving through New York this weekend. And this is because it's packed uh, waiting times are around 15 minutes i think now for subways and there's a uh, movement to make this 6 minutes for both
0: buses and subways but it's going to require a hell of a lot of work The London Underground does have its problems. It does not as yet have sludge. Jack Simpson, thank you for joining us. The article we've been discussing is available in Monocle's 2023 edition of The Forecast. It is published this week. It will be on a newsstand near you very shortly, and it's available to purchase on the website right now. This is The Daily. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. If you're still wondering what to get the natural history enthusiast in your life for Christmas, Sotheby's is here to help. Beginning today, the auction house is taking bids on an excerpt from Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, handwritten by Darwin himself and autographed. It was originally sent by Darwin to magazine editor Herman Kint in 1865 and is reckoned to be possibly the most important Darwin manuscript ever to have been auctioned, which is why bids will be started ...starting at half a million US dollars and why the estimated sale price is around 800,000. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Dr John Van Wye, director of the complete work of Charles Darwin Online. Um, John, first of all, can you tell us a bit about this manuscript? When people go and bid these fantastic amounts for it, what are they bidding on?
3: Well, they're bidding on a piece of history, I suppose. Uh, Darwin is the most famous name in the history of science... And items written by him are increasingly rare and increasingly valuable. And and this one in particular, what do we know of its provenance? Well, this one, we we know everything about its provenance. It was written on request, as you say, by this man, Hermann Kint, who was an autograph collector and the editor of a magazine that printed facsimile copies of the handwriting of famous people. So he asked Darwin, please write out something from your famous book, The Origin of Species. And so he left it to Darwin to choose the excerpt. And this is what uh, Darwin chose to do. So it's, it's important, not just because it's from Darwin and from his Origin of Species and that he signed it, but that it's the bit he chose from this 490-page world-changing book. It was this passage that he thought demonstrated that this is why i'm right this is why evolution is true
0: i mean do we know how receptive darwin usually was to such requests because by the time he gets this request from herman kint he was almost certainly the most famous scientific figure alive one of the most famous people in the english-speaking world he must have been absolutely plagued with requests like this
3: plagued he was indeed he autograph hunters would often write to him just asking to have his signature or asking him impertinent questions about whether or not he believed in God or could you believe in God and evolution at the same time, things like that. But uh, he was uh, remarkably patient with these requests and he, I think, always uh, would reply.
0: Um, that
3: said, is
0: I mean, you've explained that you, this is a key key paragraph from Origin of Species that he has copied out here. But is that the reason why the price for this particular Darwin manuscript is so fantastically high? Because even at the same auction, I notice, you can pick up a, a fistful of letters from Darwin on the subject of tailless dogs for a relative bargain of about $40,000.
3: Ah, Yes, what a bargain. But uh, <laughs> letters, letters are, of course, the most common type of thing we have and value... Uh, comes with rarity and um, The next rarest thing would be a page of the rough draft of Origin of species and there are about Maybe 50 of those still left in the world. Not so many in private hands This one is was once thought to be a, a rough draft of the book because it's a particular paragraph from the from the book written out in his handwriting, but it's not a rough draft, which is would be scribbled out and lots of changes. This one was written out in his best handwriting, which is horrible. Usually, uh, written out because he knew it would be uh, facsimile copied into a magazine for people to see. So he did his best. It's written out on a large piece of paper. It's in beautiful condition. It's got this unique provenance. We know exactly why it was written, and so on. Uh, on Darwin Online, we've not only uploaded this manuscript and a transcription in my introduction explaining its old backstory, but also the magazine where it was originally published in 1865. And the facsimile looks um, remarkably good. It looks almost like a photograph.
0: So just finally then, in, in the world of manuscript auctioning generally, does, does Darwin rank quite highly as somebody whose handwriting and whose signature is
3: prized? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's characteristic, and that's why you're seeing this now. Darwin uh, is increasingly valuable, and if you look back over the last 70 years, as his items have shown up in auctions, the prices uh, inevitably go up and up.
0: Dr John Van Wye, thank you very much for joining us. You can see that uh, letter from Darwin at the complete work of Charles Darwin online. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. This week, it says here, is Mental Health Week in Finland. This is not being observed as might have been anticipated by the entire population moving somewhere it isn't dark and freezing 11 months of the year, but by encouraging Finns, men in particular, to spend even more time in Finland's famous saunas than they already do. Well, joining me now to explain why is Monocle24's executive producer and Finland desk chief, Markus Hippi. Um, Markus, first of all, uh, we, we should start with acknowledging that there is a serious thing here, which is mental health in Finland, especially where Finnish men are concerned. What
2: is the particular worry there? Well, Finland had quite a bad reputation some 20 30 years ago for suicide rates and luckily i can report that the situation has been improving massively in recent years but the, the un keeps saying you're the happiest people in the exactly world exactly like that's been quite a, quite a twist quite a turn in, in in the finnish culture which is great but at the same time you know we are still acknowledging these issues that the winter in particular is a harsh season it lasts for a very long time it's dark and also loneliness is a big issue for men in particular and the finnish mental health experts have been following the situation carefully, obviously, and they do notice that it's men in particular who are in danger of mental health issues. Men are not looking for help. Men don't support each other as much as women do. So they've been trying to find ways of connecting with men to try to find ways to get men talk about their feelings, open up and to offer help that way.
0: Because the stereotype holds, of course, that it's famously difficult to get Finns, especially Finnish men, to talk about literally anything.
2: Yeah, I may be a bit more sociable <laughs> than uh, your Finnish men in average I know, I know, Andrew, that you actually spent quite a long time on board a Finnish icebreaker I, I, And I, you may have come across quite a few characters I,
0: I did, I once spent 10 days on a Finnish icebreaker And it took about half of those to get anybody to
2: answer any of my questions Exactly, Finnish culture is not very much about expressing your emotions <clears> But hopefully that is gradually changing So anyway, as you mentioned already earlier Finnish saunas may be a solution somehow for getting Finnish men talk about these things, about their emotions and feelings and what's wrong with their lives. And what's been trialled now this week to celebrate the mental health week in Finland is that there's one or two mental health therapists who've been going to these saunas. They have been inviting men, Finnish men, to come there to gather and talk about what's going on with their lives and how they feel about that and basically that's been your usual therapy session over there so you have a therapist sitting over there in this hot room naked listening to what people have to say to him and and he's been replying and trying to get these people reflect their feelings and think about what's going on with their lives.
0: I mean I can exclusively reveal at this point that in our upcoming Finland themed episode of The Foreign Desk we do uh, well we we get right to the sharp end where Finnish sauna culture is concerned but is it the case, do you think, that Finns and especially Finnish men are more likely to talk to each other in this fashion in the environs of a sauna? I rather got the impression that saunas were where Finns went to be even quieter and left even more alone than they would usually like to be. Actually,
2: that's not true. My really? experience of Finnish saunas is that that's a place that weirdly... You talk to people over there. It's, there's something about that environment when it's really hot... You're naked over there, you're sweating. There's no pretension. It's, it's quite an honest, sincere space. And I feel like discussions you may have with other people in the sauna, they are quite different from any, any other discussions you could have in other parts of Finland or Finnish society. There's something about everyone being equal. You can't see what they're wearing, because no one's wearing anything, <laughs> and you all are red. And you don't really worry about what you look like over there. And that's something, that's an environment that strangely makes it easier to be honest and talk about things a bit more. It's kind of, we acknowledge this in Finland. We know that if there's one place where men talk about their feelings, that's sauna. It's easy. You're there and you have to talk about something. And quite often things may get a little bit personal, which is something, I don't know if that's specifically Finnish even. I I wonder if, if that would happen regardless of where you come from. And as you, Andrew, pointed out already, you've been... Spending a <laughs> steamy sauna session uh, with the Finnish ambassador, and I don't know if you felt like it was easier to talk over there, and maybe a bit more, be a bit more open. Uh, we we didn't
0: discuss our personal problems at any great length. We were more focused on the the subject matter at hand, i.e., the Christmas e- edition of the Foreign Desk. But just finally on this. Um, All jokes aside, do you think there might be something to this, that the, I guess, the the casting aside of inhibitions necessary to cast aside one's clothes in front of strangers might actually prompt more honest and reflective engagement with a trained counsellor?
2: I think so. And I think considering what I've been reading about these therapy sauna sessions in Finland, they have been a big success. And now they're thinking about how they could take this further somehow. Obviously, there are some practical issues. If you have a therapist spending six hours in a sauna every day, you're going to need something (laughs) on the moisturizing side, at least. There are some things that need to be tackled still. But I think there definitely is something about the magic of sauna and, and Finnish culture that work well together. And this may well be the place, you know, you imagine, if you are a Finnish man who is quite stubborn, quite quiet, finding it hard to talk to anyone, this person is not going to try to find phone numbers to therapists and go to these mm. therapy rooms, session rooms. It's easier if therapists come to Saunas where these men go to anyway and and organise a, a session over there to talk about what's going on with a Finnish man. Marcus Edby, thank you for joining us. You are listening
0: to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. The Australian white ibis is arguably its homeland's least beloved bird, colloquially known due to its querulous nature and scavenging habits as the bin chicken. It did finish second in the 2017 Australian Bird of the Year poll, but this was nigh certainly the work of meddlesome internet pranksters. However, a reappraisal may be due. The ibis seems to have done what decades of the collective ingenuity of Australian could not, and figured out a means of dealing with one of the few creatures Australians admire less, the cane toad. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Monocle24's design editor, Nick Manise, whose authority for commenting on this, is that he is much like myself an Australian. And I think, first of all, Nick, uh, before we deal with the startling development that we have foreshadowed here, we need to discuss why we, as a people, are so down on
5: the Ibis. Well, do, do, do we want to go as a people, or do we want to go personally? Because I, I can go both levels for you. Well, it, it, I, <laughs> see, I don't really have anything against the Ibis. Okay. Well, clearly the Ibis didn't kill your family pet as a, a as a child, so maybe Did the that's the I point of Did the Ibis kill difference. your
0: family pet well, as a child, d- d- Nick?
5: To give you Background before we get what into was the your, what big, earth was your
0: family pet?
5: <laughs> well, no. So it, it was my my starter pet. My my mum and dad got me and my sisters uh, like some Christmas beaker. Uh, no, some some goldfish uh, <laughs> that we kept in a pond outside, and it was meant to be a little tester to see, you know, can we be responsible enough to feed something every day to look after it? And the answer um, was no. No. Well, I I would argue that when you're you know a six year old and at school, and an ibis lands uh, in your pond, which your parents have foolishly told you to keep your goldfish in. Uh, and and gobbles them all up. Uh, it's it's really not your fault. Um, so, so, I think our
0: it, listeners are learning a great deal about what has made you the man you are.
5: <laughs> so, look, to be to be honest, I, I definitely still hold a grudge against my parents, uh, and certainly the bin <laughs> the bin chicken as well. But no, full credit to mum and dad. They realised that we probably needed a bigger pet, so we got a uh, white Shih Tzu, and and we. Uh, Kept it inside. I'm learning that lesson. More than a match, though. You would think the Shih Tzu for the Ibis. You would hope so, um, uh, but you know, uh, we we never let it outside, so we could never tell. But uh, but purely scarred by by the the Ibis. But I think why everyone you know doesn't like it. The the, the clue is in the name. They, they call it the Bin Chicken because. It pretty much eats anything. So it, it, it empties bins on the streets, scavenges mm-hmm. through that, eats it. Uh, also been known to just go up to picnics and, you know, help themselves. And, and they are big, scary-looking looking we, we, we should
0: emphasise that, yeah, the ibis is a, a fairly chunky creature.
5: Yeah, and, and relatively tall. Like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to take a guess here, but what would you say, 1.2 metres? They they long um, legs? That's a big ibis. Maybe, OK, I don't know. Um, but they're, they're large. They're large for a bird and certainly imposing. Um, They've got long legs. Mm, tank-like little body. But the
0: ibis, we should say, does have going for it that it is actually native to Australia. It is not as commonly supposed a pestilential import. Uh, Something that is a
5: pestilential import is the cane toad. Mm. Um,
0: And the ibis seems
5: to have figured it out. Yeah, so, I mean, as, as you said, an import, canetose were brought in in the 1930s to control uh, insect populations. That's gone well, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, absolutely no natural predators. Uh, they're, they've, they're extremely poisonous to, to other animals that try mm-hmm. and eat them, so they're, they're killing, you know, loads and loads. And, and
0: we, we, we should not undersell the numbers here. There are Umptizillion of the things.
5: Well, one, uh, I read a stat that if you kill one female cane toad, you're taking 70,000 potential uh, cane toad babies out of the system. So that they they reproduce on mass scale, which is why they they started in Queensland. They're now in the southwest corner of Western Australia. This is in the country that is the fifth biggest in land mass in mm, the world. So they that's, have
0: this... That's, they've hopped a long way.
5: Amazing spread. Um, but yeah, extremely poisonous to, to snakes and, and, mammal, uh, and mammals. Uh, you know, you pretty much eat them, you, you're dead. So the, their skin contains a venom which it releases when mm-hmm. it's threatened, uh, which causes most animals, uh, if they eat them, to quickly die of a heart attack. So what uh, this this environmental charity Water Gum have have observed are that the bin chickens or the ibises uh, are cleaning the toads before they eat them. So they throw them in the air, which. Distresses the toad, which causes them to release venom. Once they land back down on the ground, the ibis then uh, wipes them either on wet grass or takes them to a local pond or, <laughs> or river, dunks them in there to wash the the venom off, and then eats them. and And they're they're surviving. They're fine.
0: Uh, we can, I believe, hear from the ibis, which seems like the least it deserves. Uh. Uh. It's not. Yep.
5: It's, it's not an attractive call. I'm going to say, hearing it? that, it really it, makes it, me realise another reason why we don't yeah, like it, them. Yeah, it, it it does, it does. It
0: doesn't give me those homesick pangs like hearing the call of the kookaburra or the Australian magpie. <laughs> I just got, got a cold it's shiver as just, well, just thinking uh, of
5: my poor goldfish. Uh,
0: but, but Nick, seriously, this is this is all jokes aside. Potentially amazing. It's, it's, it's huge. It, if the ibis has figured out the cane toad, do we need, do even you personally need to reappraise
5: your low view of the bird? Yeah, I think I might need to let it go because cause it, this is the thing. It, it's, it's a huge development if, if, if native animals have found a way way to deal with them. Like, that is mm. massive. Uh, and if that helps to, to cull the numbers, also huge. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. I I hundred I'm I'm willing to to maybe even forgive my parents for this.
0: Should we all be sticking a few bob on the ibis for the next Australian bird of the year contest? I, mean,
5: I, I think so. I ha- I had a look at uh, you know the the the, the, uh, the bird that beat it in 2017 was the Australian magpie. I like the magpie. Beautiful be- no beautiful sound. Uh wouldn't say it's the most Remarkable bird. Maybe just because I've been swooped by them so many times. Oh, you as well, want
0: to, you want to talk about childhood trauma? How many times did you get knocked off your bike by a territorially <laughs> aggrieved magpie growing up? No, I'm, I, if you yeah. haven't figured out, I
5: was very much an indoor kid. Uh... <laughs>
0: Uh, Nick Manese thank you very much for joining us that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily thanks to our guests today Victoria Scholar Jack Simpson Dr John Van Wyne, Nick Manese and Marco Sippi. today's show was produced by Tom Webb our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard I'm Andrew Muller here in London the Daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks for listening